I, I, and I think to add to that, what's unique about our asset class within real estate is the hatred of uncertainty is so high. So when you think about other asset classes, investors see uncertainty and they, they see an advantage there. They see a way to take advantage of a, you know, a lack of information or uh, a market opportunity. Whereas I think most real estate investors look at it as something that should be relatively certain. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. So conversations about ESG and climate change have become ubiquitous in real estate circles. At MIPM this year, it, it sometimes felt like it was the only topic that we talked about. And there continues to be good thinking and interesting action in these areas. But based on what I've heard so far, I wonder if there's enough discussion around the very real and threatening changes to our environment right now. Now, today, March 24th, 2022, I am so glad to have Climate Core Capital partners Rajiv Ranaday and Owen Wilcock on the show to go into some detail about how investors need to question and invest in this fast-changing world. So, Thank you, Rajiv and Owen, for joining me on the A-Fire podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. So I have been very interested in your company and the work that you're doing, in great part because I think it's unique. I, unfortunately, it needs to be something that everyone is doing and everyone's thinking about. Um, and you wrote a, a fascinating piece for us in the most recent uh, copy of A-Fire Summit, really kind of going into some detail about your philosophy and about the imperative uh, as we think about climate change in the United States. So before we go into detail on that, I'd love to get a sense of, we'll start with you, Owen, how did you get involved in this question of kind of investing into climate change? Yeah, thank you for having us, Gunnar. Um, my career in my 20s was with uh, the Australian government as a diplomat working on international environment and climate agreements. Uh, and then after a, a post-career pivot with the MBA uh, into real estate and institutional services, those two worlds of the natural environment and the built environment came together. And I was very fortunate to come back and do some research at the Graduate School of Design here at Harvard, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I still live. And I was really preoccupied with this question of what is going to happen to real estate when we can quantify climate risk better. Uh, there was a number of world-class faculty that were trying to answer that question that I got to work under. And as we started to explore that more, it was really important to think about it in a sense of timescales. So almost everything in our economic data is predicated on post-World War II information. You know, we've lived through this extraordinary period of stability in relative terms, uh, but we've been recording carbon in the atmosphere since the 1880s. And if you go back to tree rings or ice cores, you know, we can understand our um, atmosphere right back tens of thousands of years. But there's a tendency in financial markets to almost place those two things side by side as though they're like comparisons. 
it then became very clear as I worked on the data and started to build a data set that effectively took the 280 cities in America above 100,000 people and tried to plot their real estate markets for their respective individualized climate risk. And it just became very clear that there are a lot of markets in the United States and elsewhere where we have started to see very meaningful changes from what our ancestors first discovered when they settled these markets. And so it was trying to understand that and then think about how this repricing might unfold um, that led this question to be so interesting to me. And then for Raj and I to seriously think about forming Climate Core Capital to try and address some parts of it. Oh, that, that's fascinating. And you're right. I think there's a tendency, especially in real estate, for us to be confined to a to, to a, a time scale that is not necessarily the time scale that we're working in, that we, we tend to not think about where this thing goes from an investment standpoint. So I'm interested in hearing more about that later. But Rajiv, how did, how did you get involved with this guy, Owen, and, and, and what are you doing? Yeah, good good question. Um, so, so my career has spanned institutional real estate capital markets predominantly, and along the way, working on a lot of kind of um, capital raising, growth projects, investing, and always staying in touch with kind of the impact and ESG related kind of growth in our industry, which was always interesting to me because we're the only asset class that is also on the hierarchy of needs. And we talk a lot about ESG. We talk a lot about impact. No one needs a hedge fund. You need shelter. And I think it's an interesting place for us as an asset class and as practitioners to think a little bit more deeply about um, you know, what we do and, and the impact that it has. So when Owen and I first started talking about just this question very broadly, what does climate change mean for the built environment? The sub question we added to that was, what does it mean for a real estate investor? For someone investing in real estate, looking for real estate to perform in a certain way, to perform a duty sort of to the portfolio or to the allocation, um, what does climate change do to that? Your ability to preserve capital, access leverage, uh, produce inflation-adjusted income. These types of things are part of our sub-question that kind of results in Climate Core's thesis and investment objectives, which is really developing strategies driven by climate science that allow investors to shield their capital from climate risk within the real estate asset class. Um, and thinking about where to do that, the timescales to do that, the types of assets to do that with, uh, you know, in order for investors to continue getting from real estate what they've had for you know decades, um, that that is the 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 nut of it, I think, and in terms of what you guys are doing and where you're going. But I want to make sure that I reemphasize so that no one forgets uh, the wisdom that you shared with us, Rajiv. No one needs a hedge fund, but everyone needs. <laughs> don't, don't, don't say that too many times. I come love that. I love that. And I want to tell that to every institutional investor. Uh, no one needs a hedge fund. Everyone needs shelter. Um, all right. Well, so I think both of you have talked about this a little bit, but I, I want to make sure I'm not missing anything in terms of what core climate core capital is doing. What's the, the core issue that you're at? And, and what is it that what is it that's different about how you're approaching this than others that are thinking, well, I, I'm concerned about this, I do ESG, but you're, you're investing around like this climate catastrophe and really thinking about it from a data perspective and how it's impacting us, not 100 years from now, but how it's affecting us now. Owen, you want to take a shot at that? Yeah, I think the simplest way to lay it out is there's a way that things have always worked in real estate. There's a big problem. 
And financial markets and communities are going to respond to that problem in very different ways. So there's a way that things have always worked, as Raj has alluded to. You know, we are talking about one of the most stable asset classes, one of the best compounding machines uh, in, in, in the world. Um, if you bought a house in 1940, adjusted for inflation, it has risen 9x. Um, if you think about something like the Empire State Building um, from its initial construction in 1931, uh, relative to that initial cost of construction, the market value has achieved a 5.3% and average annual growth rate over the very long run, 5.3% every year. So there's lots of stable intuitive reasons why real estate always has needs. It can be adaptively reused, it is scarce. And then you have the tax advantages, the ability to use leverage, and so when you have a very stable thing, it doesn't take a lot to disrupt it. And what we are seeing now is through uh, slow onset and disaster events, it becomes very difficult for financial markets and homeowners to be able to understand what their long run risk settings are. And the first thing that financial markets do when they make that realization is they say, well, reward has to still outweigh risk. So if you think about levers, like the cost and availability of debt, if you think about insurance and premiums needing to still give that margin of profit for the insurers if they're going to be active in a market and repricing, or otherwise they just simply withdraw because the risk outweighs the reward. Or you think about a context like property taxes where municipalities now are really only starting to come to terms with where their tax base sits, what the vulnerabilities and points of exposure are and the amount they're going to have to spend to protect that tax base. If you think about a coastal market with a large amount of development at low-lying sea level points, um, they have to spend to defend. So in a lot of these early exposure markets, it just takes one of these levers. It just takes uh, lenders in Phoenix to start seeing 170, 95 degree days a year in the middle of next decade and say, well, is that going to continue to be an inbound migration market? Should we be considering a 15 or 20 year cap on mortgages instead of 30 years? All it's going to take is for an insurer to say, the California Central Valley and the wildfire areas are just too risky for us and there is too much concentrated exposure, so we're going to withdraw from that market. Or do you have a property tax location like Avon in the Outer Banks of North Carolina where there is one road into a beachside town and that road is constantly washing away now with storm erosion and there is no one coming to the rescue. Those ratepayers are now having to deal with 50 and 60% increases because they are the only people that are um, able to deal with that specific risk. There is no other greater economic need for that area to be protected. So in a lot of locations, it's not just one of these things hitting, it's multiple. And we've already started to see some evidence in the data that sellers are, find, are struggling to find buyers. So when you look at, and, and what you're describing is, is disturbing, this idea that um, this stable market that we've known for our entire lives and before um, has, all it takes is for one lever to, to be off, for it to kind of unbalance and for it to be disrupted. Are there things, because a lot of these markets still look pretty good. I mean, you know, you're still seeing some good pricing, you know, in, in Southern Florida, you're still seeing some things that are, powerful and you're seeing some migration, you're seeing all, a lot of migration in some of these markets. Are there indicators that investors should be looking at, whether it's data or behaviors, uh, that would tell you this is 
this is a market under great stress. The same way you can look at a forest before it burns down and go, this forest is stressed. It doesn't have enough water. There are certain things that I'm seeing that means all it takes is a spark. So what are those indicators when you look at some of these at-risk markets? Yeah, I think uh, a good example is somewhere like the Florida Keys. So the, the long uh, highways that we can all imagine from the films that run out to those barrier islands, they are, they are not high enough in many locations to withstand uh, king tide nuisance flooding or sea level rise over time. The uh, projected cost is about $2 million a mile to elevate those roads, but the populations and the value at risk that sits out on the outer tips of the keys cannot justify that level of federal investment. So that's an extreme case where there is an argument now to say for every dollar that is being invested in the Florida Keys, we're unlikely to see a return collectively. Um, But then in places like Cape Coral, um, in in many other markets like Tampa and Orlando, you're starting to see uh, extreme heat conditions that, as the article in, in Summit showed, are not too dissimilar to what Death Valley was experiencing from 1981 to 2010. Uh, by the back end of this decade, the early part of next decade, it's going to be too hot to be productive outside one in every two days of the year. Now, when do you start to think about uh, a capital transfer? And that's really difficult. We often get asked from investors, uh, you know, when is the when? How should I time this rebalancing or repositioning if I understand the thesis that you're proposing? Um, One of the big ideas we try to get across to investors is, it doesn't require the big one. Miami does not need to see another Hurricane Andrew for the repricing to occur. It is simply financial markets recognizing the risk better. And if there are investment firms like us out there that are starting to see this picture um, more clearly, then certainly the insurers, certainly the lenders, they have access to the same data and even at arguably a more granular level because there's much more portfolio risk. Um, And so I think for people to start thinking about signs, it's, it's more about asking yourself to think about place-based features. So whenever we make a bet in real estate, uh, you're effectively making the bet that the place-based features of the market are going to be more desirable and not less desirable when it comes for you to exit. So I would simply put yourself in the shoes of someone who lives in some of those markets and says, well, how would these, these place-based features change over time? And where are the markers that I need to start to look for for a place to become less desirable? That certainly explains why all the storms and the negative events that we've had over the last couple of years don't seem to have had that big an impact. There's that momentary problem. I mean, you know, you have no electricity in Texas, and then it's right back to normal. Um, that the that storms don't do it. They somehow psychologically don't move us. They're one-time events. We figure out how to get around them. So, Rajiv, you know, th- there's a lot of data that you guys have been collecting, and, and obviously, um, Owen, you know, created this whole data set at Harvard, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but how are investors responding to this and how should they respond to it? Yeah, I think, you know, if you ask most investors how they think about climate change and climate risk, it typically falls into the ESG kind of checkbox mentality. One of the things we're quite um, ready to say around ESG and our role within it is within the E of ESG, there are uh, components of adaptation and resilience. And we see ourselves in that space, which is that we are not, um, we agree that carbon mitigation and sustainability and efficiency of the asset 
is extremely important and sort of the flip side to what we're doing. And that's where most of the attention is. That's where most investors are spending their time is what is the sustainability of the asset? And to put it really simply, a net zero asset in Miami is no less at risk than a non-net zero asset in Miami, right? So when we think about adaptation and resilience, we're talking to investors about how resilient is your portfolio in the face of climate change and its ability to continue performing. The reception among investors has has been generally very positive. I mean, to be honest, the number of non-believers is, is quite few. Uh, obviously, this is a key, uh, a key topic for everyone. Um, we often get asked, you know, how seriously should I be taking this? Uh, you know, obviously, we think definitely seriously, but um, this question on timing, how do you sacrifice? Wh- what is the sacrifice that's required to take climate risk seriously? And, you know, our whole thesis is that there is no sacrifice, that you shouldn't be sacrificing what real estate does for you in terms of growth, what your portfolio needs are, what your return requirements are, while still mitigating your, your climate risk exposure. And I think a lot of what we do is education with investors and telling them that when you print out a report from a data provider on climate risk for your single asset, um, you are getting a snapshot, which is not really a comprehensive picture. So you can get something that tells you, you know, good, bad, maybe type analysis or, you know, buy, sell, hold type analysis. That's really not a good reflection of what climate change means for real estate. To Owen's point, it's not really bringing in information on how the financial markets, whether insurance, tax, debt, are starting to or liquidity are starting to consider the market. It's really not giving you a sense of the services that lead into that asset, whether it's transit, energy, water, uh, internet, et cetera, data centers. What are those things exposure to climate risk in the surrounding area? So you're really not going to get a clear sense. And I I think investors are still at the stage of starting to grasp that, which is just because you've done a climate assessment doesn't really mean you've mitigated anything. Um, Just because you understand that there's risk doesn't mean, or let's say your asset level, your asset site specific has zero risk, doesn't mean the greater infrastructure, the greater region, the tax base, the insurance, which is typically done at a state level is not at risk. so, you know, for, for an investor to think about that, uh, you know, there's a zoom in, zoom out experience that, that kind of you have to go through. And to your question on indicators, there is really no one indicator. You really have to take, you know, we take hundreds, right, to, to try and build to try and build a picture. Well, the other problem that I have when when we talk about climate risk at, at, at an investor level is it, I, I could be wrong, but it feels to me like we're talking about very different timescales that not everyone's kind of on board understanding that, you know, in terms of they have to worry about not only the term of their investment, but the time after that so that someone can buy it, but also that when they talk to an insurance company, they're talking to someone who has a one-year time frame. Um, and we talk about how bad is the climate today? Uh, well, that's probably not the right way to do it. And certainly, I think from, from a risk uh, perspective, I don't think we're asking enough questions about timescale. It is precisely. It is. I'll, I'll T.O. and up on this, but it is the most frequent question we get. When is the when? Uh, when do I need to exit either from our portfolio or at the end of a meeting, someone will say, you know, I've got a uh, home in Florida. What, what should I do about that? Um, or Phoenix or someplace uh, that, that's more early exposure. Um, 
And th there's both a technical answer to that, and I think also a philosophical answer to that in terms of how you need to think about this. And, you know, Owen, maybe if you want to talk to some of both of those. Yeah, I think a, a good example just to, to give the listeners a, like a very clear um, tangible case is, is somewhere like Minneapolis, St. Paul. So this is a northern latitude market. It was settled by Scandinavians in the early 19th century. It's now got an economy larger in GDP, uh, GDP terms than the entire nation of New Zealand. Um, the immediate prompt for almost every American is the Twin Cities are a cold place. So a simple litmus test of that is a day recording above 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius. Um, if you lived in the Twin Cities from 1970 to the year 2000, so the period we generally speak of as the 0.5 degree world, um, heat risk wasn't really a problem. Uh, they experienced about four days on average above 95 in a warmer year, they might have 12, but in a cooler year, hot weather like that just simply didn't happen in Minnesota. A warm year in a two degrees world, which is what we're unfortunately on track for, um, with which is why the Paris Agreement and net zero for, by 2050 is such a large stated goal by governments and corporations. Uh, a warm year in a two degrees world uh, would see 24 days in any given year above 95 degrees Fahrenheit in Minnesota's capital, which is nearly a whole month. That's a big difference. But in Houston to the south, a two degrees rise above pre-industrial levels would be up to 104 days a year in those conditions. So that's nearly a third of the year. So you start to say, do I pick a date where I think Houston stops being an inbound migration market? Um, that's a question we often get when we give that example. That kind of thinking misunderstands the problem because it's not really possible to predict when those kind of conditions become too much for a residential uh, household firm, a meaningful portion of capital in Houston. The better way to think about it is the cap rate for class A stabilized multifamily in Houston and Minneapolis is near identical, but their climate fortunes are very different. So Raj and I, when we speak with investors, we're not arguing that Houston is doomed or destined to depopulate entirely. We're simply saying that there are place-based features of that market that are about to irrevocably change when it becomes too hot to be productive outside one in every three days of the year. And there is presently no premium to transfer the capital and sell your multifamily building in Houston and buy an identical asset in the Twin Cities. I, I, and I think to add to that, what's unique about our asset class within real estate is the hatred of uncertainty is so high. So when you think about other asset classes, investors see uncertainty and they, they see an advantage there. They see a way to take advantage of a, you know, a lack of information or uh, a market opportunity. Whereas I think most real estate investors look at it as something that should be relatively certain, uh, downside protected, all of those things. We, you know, I, I think if there's something Climate Core does, we love uncertainty. We live with it. We embrace it because the reality is that the volatility that investors are going to experience within real estate, given a changing climate and giving the risks that that become exposed, you know, is going to be meaningful and is going to accelerate to kind of pick up on something Owen was saying, we're not arguing Houston's going to be vacated. What we are saying is there are these macro changes from a climate perspective that create economic changes. And the analogy we actually use most often is deindustrialization in the United States. So these, it was a slow onset experience of, uh, lack of employment, lack of demand, lack of inbound migration, lack of capital anchors, lack of investment um, that 
sort of gutted these communities and eroded value and wealth quite meaningfully. And we kind of look at these markets that way too. Houston's not going to evaporate. At the same time, you could see these kind of rolling experience of lack of capital investment, higher risk, higher cost, less demand, et cetera, which just starts to make it something different than it used to be. Um, and, and so- So are you arguing then that we're gonna see as as weather get as things get hotter, that we could potentially see a Houston behave like a Rochester, a Buffalo, a Cleveland uh, through the second half of the 20th century. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, I think there's a strong argument to say that the recipe that uh, the, the recipe that resulted in some of those places you mentioned kind of. Uh, becoming places of misfortune. Yeah, I think you could equally see that in a lot of the coastal South, um, both for heat, storm, water issues, et cetera. You know, it's, it's multifactorial, just like, uh, you know, deindustrialization is. Thank you for listening in uh, to the first part of this fascinating interview with Rajiv and Owen. We're going to pick this up again in a second part uh, where we're going to be speaking a bit about rising heat Um, and what that means for different cities and insurance and values and a gradual reversal of growth in some markets. We're going to be talking about the blackjack investing approach uh, to investing into uh, the risk of climate change. Um, Also talking a bit about the rolling uh, cycle of impairment that we may be seeing across a lot of our markets over the next 10 to 20 years. What's the tipping point for some of these issues, especially in the Sun Belt? And how should we be looking at California's water challenges uh, going forward? It's not all bleak, though, I promise. So make sure that you tune in to the second part of this podcast. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.